Welcome in everybody to the Longhorn Republic, your source for Texas Longhorn news, sports, and opinions with a bit of snark built in. We are a podcast of Burn Orange Nation, and you can find more great Texas Longhorn content over at burnorangenation.com. If you like what we do, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Helps get the show out there. Share this with your friends wherever you found it, whether it was Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, anywhere where you find fine podcast content. You can find Kyle and myself. Also, apparently, you can review us on Spotify as well. Follow us on social media uh, at Longhorn Republic. You can shoot us an email, longhornrepublicpod at gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram, the Longhorn Republic. My name is Gerald Goodridge. I'm your host this week, like I am every week. And I'm joined by a man who will never get used to Gary Patterson wearing burnt orange, Kyle Carpenter. Kyle, how are you? It's so, so, so weird um, to see. It's not something that feels natural. I feel like... Uh, you know, I've said things and used the expression. It's like you know, vinegar, vinegar on your lips when you you have to say the words that hurt so much. I imagine putting those two fingers up and not in a downward motion must have just been crippling for him. <laughs> but I'm not gonna lie, it looks good. I, I am a little curious what shade if he sweats enough if the burnt orange will look purple. But uh, yeah, it'll it'll be it'll be it takes some getting used to. That's for sure. There's a picture of Jonathan Gray's dad. If you don't know who Jonathan Gray's father was, he was an all-time running back at Texas Tech. And when Jonathan Gray committed to the University of Texas and, and signed on National Signing Day, there's a there's an image of him and his mom like doing the hookum, and Jonathan's putting the signature, and his dad is doing like the look like you like you open up the trash can and you see something nasty and it's just like shocking. That's the look that's on his dad's face because his dad went to Texas Tech and I feel like Gary feels that on the inside every time. I also, and this is just me because petty is my native tongue, I also feel like Gary is like getting some sick satisfaction out of all the TCU fans that are like griping because of the way things ended with TCU. Yep. I think Gary is fluent in petty. I think Gary, again, he his best move as a TCU coach was to, you know, recruit actively against UT. That was his space that he found. So he knows all about UT's talking points. He's been inverting them for years. But I, I, I think that his spite for UT is very easily because I, I, I don't, I'm not calling Gary a disloyal person, but I think Gary has the personality to show types of it that if, if you wrong him, you know, he, he will happily try to get you back. And so uh, I, I think – I could see him easily leaning in and just absolutely destroying any any recruit who's between UT and TCU. Uh, I feel like stands no chance with with Patterson now wearing the the, the burnt orange. Um, yeah, I, I I feel like he is fluent in petty uh, as well. And uh, and you know, like I said, we'll take getting used to for all people involved, in, in including of course uh, the team that has a statue of the guy who who now you know throws the horns up. Uh, it, it just you know. It's, it's, oh, what days we live in. Signs of the end times. If I hear trumpets, we all know it's going down. But we're not here to talk about signs of the apocalypse. We're here to talk about Texas putting some signs of life on the basketball court. Uh, they struggled against Kansas State, which that is possibly the ugliest game I've seen from that team that's put together a lot of ugly games. Uh, but they bounced back and put the boots to Oklahoma State, so we'll talk about that. Basketball, uh, women's basketball got on a bit of a roll this week. We'll talk about some transfers and all the other sports going on on campus with down the 40. We'll swing through the NFL ranks for a little bit, and we'll obviously close the show out with some guys. Zillatron and some bang the drum. So Texas looked to uh, avoid its first back-to-back -back set of losses this year, and they couldn't do that. And absolutely just, just 
gave up the ghost, fumbled the bag, whatever you want to say against Kansas State, had a lead late, but fell 66 to 65. Texas led by five points with 332 left in that game and then did not score. For the remainder of that game, let me run you through it. Timmy Allen missed two free throws. Andrew Jones missed a jumper on a rush shot. Courtney Ramey missed another jump jumper. And then Marcus Carr missed the go-ahead buzzer beater. Carr was not at fault, but Texas had not one but two extended scoring droughts that probably did them in in that one. Yeah, the 641 scoring drought that ended basically with a with a – basket to end the first half with five seconds left if they didn't get that basket that drought would have stretched to effectively stretched to one field goal in about 10 minutes because they didn't score until right around the 17 minute mark of the second half so about 10 minutes of drought uh at the midpoint of the game and then even as we mentioned three and a half minutes to end it that's that's not good and that's where we talk about the, the texas offense being anemic um look in this one I mean, sure, Carr missed the buzzer beater, but Marcus Carr had the game that I think we thought when he signed this would be what he'd be doing every night, right? 25 points, getting to the rim, making con- tough contested shots, but good shots, um, you know, getting to the line, just kind of facilitating the offense. They they switched some things on him a little bit, but also Chris Beard switched some things. He felt that Carr had the hot hand and it, it, you didn't run the motion offense for stretches and they just kind of would go into pick and roll, you know, pro Marcus Carr situations and, uh, you know, run sets to get him downhill when he's, when he's hot. And that's, was good to see. Um, but you know, we, again, we'll figure out if that's a micro trend or if there uh, is something that's learned from that. But, you know, Carr, I think was, was very good in this one. And, and again, if it's anybody else, we're, we're lauding it, but I think there is an expectation that he's been doing this already. But, you know, very good in this one. Timmy Allen come in, got 15, and, and grabbed six boards, um, even though he he missed the two free throws late. Anytime you miss free throws, people will, will see you. Um, Trey Mitchell had nine, and I think one of the big things on this was, you know, you had your Texas guys who've been here before in a Big 12 game, and Jones and Ramey just not able to do a ton for a 10 combined on the night uh this one was tough gerald and it's another game where even though it wasn't that they just purely outsized us that texas texas looks like it's one thing or another but one of the things consistently is it looks like they're getting beat on the boards they're getting beat with size they're just they're not able to have that marquee you know lottery style big that they've had for the past five years that's erased a lot of other things Kansas State absolutely abused Texas down low. 28 to 16 was the in the paint scoring margin. They also got 13 second chance points. So you put a dent in either one of those stats, and this game turns out significantly di- differently, right? Like Mark Smith, 22 and 8. Yeah. Big night, doing a lot. It's hard for me to like look at the whatever free throws Marcus Carr missed or whatever because like that dude is the only reason why it was even close late. He put the team. He scored like what seven out of eleven at one point for Texas, yeah. just keeping him in the game. Um, and so, really for me, the issue for Texas is that it feels like two guys have a really good game, and then the rest of the mm. team is like. I, I'm not here tonight. And it's it's two different guys each time. Sometimes it's Andrew Jones lighting up OU and everybody else catches along. 
Texas needs consistency, especially when Marcus Carr is doing what Marcus Carr should be doing. Like if, if for a game when he scores 25 of the 65 points you scored, like the rest of you should be able to, to put up enough of a fight to keep that from being in a losing effort. And that to me is the most frustrating part of Texas is, is the lack of consistency across the board. Cause Carr has had his struggle games and Timmy Allen has had his struggle games and, and, Ramey and Desuit, all those guys, they've had their big games, but they've also had those games where it's like, did that guy even warm up? Like, what the heck is going on? Yeah, I think that's a good point. If they can, if they, the optimism in me says if they can find a way to get hot and get consistent and have multiple guys on the same night firing that we still haven't seen the ceiling, the realist in me says, hey, they scored 65 in this game for a Texas team under Chris Beard. That should be a winning formula because you assume. Again, it's a hard thing to do every night in, night out, but that you're going to hold them to you know less than a point per possession, keep the number of possessions down, and hold them to scores in the 50s. And 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 if you score 65, you have a nice comfortable win if they only score 57. But you know they they did let Kansas State score some, and again, especially the part of a the the Chris Beard symphony to work has to just work perfectly in all of its execution. The part that didn't work against Kansas state was, you know, getting destroyed inside on the boards and letting them get uh, points in the paint and second chance points. And when that happens and you get those extra possessions, all of a sudden 13 second chance points that throws everything off from a 65, 57 win. Or, you know, again, that's understanding the Chris Beard, the way we do things now, there is, I've talked to the, the, the optimist, the realist, there is the, the, you know, uh, extremist in me that says, why don't we just do something different? Why don't we score for stretches of a game and not have, you know, multiple multi-minute stretches? Like, why don't we just try something different and do something better uh, on offense? But again, take either of those takes uh, that you want, but it was a loss that probably shouldn't have been. It was a loss that was tough. It was a loss that ultimately is probably the thing that knocked Texas out of the top 25. Absolutely. And Texas is currently sitting in the receiving votes category, but they got it back on track. The defense showed up against Oklahoma State. Uh, the Cowboys shot just 37.5% from the floor. They were 9 of 28 in the second half. And it seemed like Texas was like, Bryce, you're going to get your, you, you just get yours. Bryce Thompson, you get yours. And he didn't have that great of a shooting night. It was eight of 18, uh, but scored 20, but then no other Oklahoma state player scored more than six. And that is a winning recipe to come away with a 56 to 51 win. And so that Mar Marcus Carr was, was the man again for Texas, but that was again, a more consistent offensive performance from the rest of the team while also minimizing and limiting what Oklahoma State likes to do from the floor. An interesting and it shouldn't be overlooked is Oklahoma State was without their other big scores. So Texas had the game plan ready to go to say, if you only have one, we're, we're just going to, you know, see what else you can do. They Because, you know, basically everyone else on the team picked up theirs uh, little by little. They got 30 of their 51 in the paint, um, but they, they couldn't hit from, from free throw or three-point range. And again, this was a, a performance that looked like the way that the beard iteration of this team at its best wins, which is kind of ugly wins, right? We talked about an ugly loss. This was an ugly win, but it was still a win, but they kind of strangled them. Uh, at the end, they gave up uh, 51 points, right? So even though they only scored 56, they gave up 51. I mean, you're right. Carr was, was the guy um, only two of 10 on the night was throwing up some ugly shots, but he got his 14 and he did it down the stretch. Again, when you talk about needing something that's consistent, Marcus Carr went eight for eight from the free throw all in the final six games of the minute after uh, six, uh, excuse me, minutes of the game after watching, uh, 
a game where Texas basically melted down down the stretch. The fact that they showed some consistency at points when it looked like it could have just easily the whole season could have gone sideways if, if they weren't able to get that consistency. I think that being able to hit from the free throw and, and again having Carr, even on not one of his plus nights from the field, able to get his is what you expected and his kind of being the offensive leader uh, of the team that we thought he, he, he would likely be. Um, it, it was just an interesting game of some runs where Texas started 13-0 to zero and then gave up a 14 point run. You know, it was, it was, it was interesting. Um, they lost the turnover battle on this one, which usually if that happens, they, they do not win games. They, they, they haven't done that all year, but they had turnovers on 30% of their possessions. So only 22% for Oklahoma state. So, I mean, interesting. Um, I think Oklahoma state again, gave Texas something, gave them a, a, a test and they passed it. Uh, but I don't know that it'll be the hardest test that they have, the rest of the year. TCU is not necessarily going to test your metal in that one. I'm not sure they're, I mean, they're, it's a big 12 team, so they could just come up and bite you in the keister. TCU just slapped Iowa state in the past game. It is still big 12 and Iowa state's you, as we saw a very good team. Again, the big 12 is, and we've said this before and we'll continue to say this until Texas leaves the big 12, but the big, and we probably will say it after the Texas leaves the big 12 because the teams coming into the big 12 are no slouch, but like from top to bottom, there's not a more competitive league where like each and every week somebody is just going to eat your lunch. And so might be in Fort Worth on on uh, on Tuesday, the day you're listening to this. And then the first of two potential meetings with a former coach, because Texas would, if the season ended right now, be matched up 10-7 with Marquette. That's another conversation for another day. Texas host Rick Barnes and the Tennessee Volunteers on Saturday as part of the Big 12 SEC Challenge, hopefully hoping to crawl their way back into the top 25. Now on the ladies side of things, number 15 women's basketball absolutely obliterated Iowa State who was out their star Ashley jo- uh, Jones. I, I, it's it's not Jones, it's J-O-E-N-S, Jones for the game, um, but they still managed to put two in double figures. And then TCU also got the same treatment. It was actually even more lopsided by three points, uh, 68 to 47 against the Horned frogs and this was these were both your typical Vic Schaefer games where you're going to make the other team play ugly and you're going to make as many shots as you possibly can I know that seems like a simple basketball formula but when Vic Schaefer does it it turns from a simple basketball formula to a winning philosophy that's that's almost bordering on artistic <laughs> I like that um yeah I mean look I don't care who they're without that's a, that's a good Iowa State team that that was a top 10 team and to to not just go in and win um but you know which is we saw tough to do for men or women going into to Ames uh, but to go and win by by 20 up there is great and then to kind of replicate basically the same scoreline against TCU showing you know 20 point margin in the big 12 is is just good right that's that's always going to be good and, and strangling them holding offense to, to under 30 percent shooting is is great in Iowa State they shot 27 uh, percent I think uh, in the the second half TC was three for 11 um, you know so it, it, it's it's um, two games that that had a similar mo where defense led to offense I think a couple different players got going in, in each of the different games but that's good right that's a good sign when we talk about on the men's side, we'd like to get multiple people going. The fact that Texas has, you don't know exactly, you know, probably Alyssa Matharu, uh, who else is going to do it? But they, they have about, you know, five players who any given time could be the number one or number two scorer uh, for this, this women's basketball team. That's a really good sign when we talk about a tournament run. And I know that's what Vic wants. He wants his, his guaranteed rotation and who's going to, who's going to step up in the big moments, but there's nights when, when, you know, 
that person, your number one, your number two, your number three even, aren't on and to have the confidence that you can get 10, 15 points uh, from anyone down the line to five, six, seven, uh, makes you feel pretty good, again, with especially with a team that is going to uh, keep the opponent's scoring numbers down. In their Cinderella run last year, they took the top scoring offense in the country and held them to like 25 points under what they'd been averaging, even in the tournament, but all season uh, in Maryland. And so, you know, th- that's that's what a Schaefer team does in, in as play gets restricted in conference and then even more restricted in the tournament. So this, this to me was a really good week. They went three for four, uh, the two teams, but especially for the women going two and oh, uh, and, and 20 point, basically a, a 45 ish point margin across the two games. Um, very, very good at Texas. It does not, um, does not get easier from here for the, for the women who've had one of the toughest schedules all year. The men, I believe, do have the hardest remaining strength of schedule in the country. Uh, the women, I don't know if it's that high, but it is certainly uh, a lot of ranked numbers still on the schedule. There are a lot of numbers left on the schedule, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you look at like what Texas did against TCU, and you got the Audrey Warren experiment coming off the bench seems to be paying off for them. She scored 13 coming off the bench uh, against TCU and kind of helped spark them to that big 22-9 second quarter. Like that is that is the the blueprint for success, especially when you have someone like Warren, who's an experienced bulldog, for lack of a better term. It feels weird to say that, but like, she's the one that's going to get you the, the, the dirty, like the, the dirty, gritty, grimy play. She's going to take the charge. She's going to get in there and force a jump ball. She's going to do those things um, that make the difference for Texas. And, and I think moving her out of the starting lineup seemed like a, a tough decision to make, especially because she's Somebody that helped Schaefer make that deep run last year, and she's somebody who's been in Texas for a long time. Uh, but it seems to be really providing the spark that Texas needs. Hopefully, that spark continues. Texas is hosting Kansas State on Wednesday, who is coming off of center Ioka Lee setting the all-time single-game scoring record to upset the Oklahoma Sooners with a 61-point performance, six-six big down low, shot 76.7. Percent. She honestly, I don't think she ever shot from outside of like three feet, uh, which is how you get that good of a number. But she also went fifteen and seventeen from the line. Yeah, and 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 she she has not uh, taken a three pointer this season out of the top ten scores. She's the only one who isn't a guard. I was looking at it. Uh, you know, everyone else has at least like 15 to 20 three-pointers. A lot of them have 30 or 40 or 50 on the year to be in the top 10 scoring. The fact that she does it just in the paint shows you how much of a a beast she is down low. Um, Yeah, but then also if you foul her, she's elite from the free throw line. It's it's scary, and she's had, I think – multiple games over 30 like five games over 38 points this season she's very very good when she gets going so Vic will play both of those teams you know again number 14 Oklahoma is a guard led team so there's certain things that Kansas State can do and then you'll get the exact opposite against OU so you know what what was supposed to be uh, a game against a non-ranked opponent that should be a little bit easier before these multiple uh, premier matchups. We just heard the the Baylor matchup is prime time. Uh, you know, th- this this has just gotten a little bit harder if she's in that kind of, I don't want to say a purple patch of form to be too on the nose, but uh, playing that type, uh, you know, it's going to be a tough one. Both of these games, OU and Kansas, again, playing opposite styles with a, uh, a, a inside-out game for Kansas State and a guard-heavy game. Both the men's and the women's Big 12 slate are just absolutely nuts. And here's hoping that the Longhorns come out of this week uh, faring 
for the ladies just as good and for the men slightly better than they did last week. So now's the part of the show where we rip around the rest of campus and we down the 40. Starting it off, Texas looked like it was going to miss at least in the first big transfer window on a position of need in the transfer portal at wide receiver. Wyoming transfer Isaiah Nayer committed to Tennessee without taking all of his visits. Uh, that's suspicious, but neither here nor there. But anywho, he took a couple more visits, ended up in Austin last weekend on a like Thursday, Friday situation right before the last day to commit or to enroll in classes. And lo and behold, he commits to Texas, uh, changing out of the worse, lesser orange into the better orange. But um, he's a guy who could be a big contributor for Texas. Absolutely. In an act of Pantone chaos, he upgraded his block T from PMS 151 to that beautiful 159 shade that we know is burnt orange. Uh, kid out of DFW. I mean, it was a loaded receiver class in Texas uh, that year. He, he has three years of eligibility uh, remaining with the COVID year, but uh, he, he went a little bit uh, out of the Fort Worth area, um, a little bit under the radar uh, to go to Wyoming, but uh, has, has looked great there. He's 6'3", big play threat, long strider. He's not like a... You know he's not the speed for two guy, um, but he is he is on tape just beating people with his big strides. Uh, I'm, this is the stretch of all stretches to say this, but the way that Vince Young was a strider and didn't look as fast, but just people kept not being able to keep up with him is what I see a little bit from uh, from him. Um, his nineteen almost 2019.95 yards per reception and 12 receiving TDs led the conference and were sixth and eighth uh, in the FBS last year. So he's a guy who can make big plays. And again, is a guy who as a young player, and we have a young player with 12 touchdowns last year and Xavier worthy, who he's joining um, is a used to receiving the bulk of his, his team's targets. So it'll be interesting uh, that defenses will kind of have to pick a little bit between uh, X and Nayor, And, and, you know, he had 12 of his 15s, his team's, 12 of his team's 15 receiving touchdowns last year. So uh, it'll be interesting if he can be even better when he's not the only uh, player that defense has to look for in the passing game. Yeah, and, and you talked about him and in, in that being a big class, but the other thing about Nair is that he is extremely raw as a player. He only played one year of varsity football due to UIL transfer rules, transferred in as a junior, was ruled ineligible, so he played JV ball, which is absolutely completely unfair, uh, and then played one year of varsity ball, was under-recruited, made his money uh, in air quotes, and now he'll make some money at Texas, but made his money uh, a couple of years at Wyoming and looked to kind of make up for the fact that he was very, very under-recruited, but absolutely incredible. You said he has three years of eligibility. I would be shocked if we got even two, but like there's no way he's going to be at Texas uh, for, more than, for more than two years, maybe just one year, depending on how this year turns out uh, in the offense. But he, but he fills a need for Texas at that wide receiver spot. He can jump. He's a, he's a leaper who can, who can also catch 50-50 balls. It also also allows Worthy to play a little bit more inside if that's where he where they find the preference for him. Imagine a world where like Troy O'Meary is also healthy, where you can have Worthy playing in the slot and you have Nair on one side and O'Meary or Marcus Washington, um, or have Jordan Whittington playing the slot and you have uh, Worthy and Nair on the other side. So it allows a lot of uh, versatility and utility in that passing game. In the way Sark likes to use them, where he said receivers don't necessarily have an X Y Z. Uh, you know, delineation. They will learn all the positions. They will, in different routes and different packages, be inside, outside, move from the outside into inside with motion. You know, hunting matchups. So uh, interesting. Anytime you add weapons, you know, it's it's hard to. We go to our kind of our, our you know 
aerial view of a football field and where the positions sit. Um, but Sark just sees athletes, and uh, I think he's, he certainly got one here. So Texas still probably looking to fill a couple more slots in the transfer portal, but that era that that window has closed at least for uh, the spring semester. There'll likely be another one after spring practice and in the summer. So Texas still not done likely in the portal. Number five, men's tennis. It was a tight one against number 14, Arizona. They fell four to three and then absolutely dominated Arizona State uh, in their first two road tests of the season. On the women's side, they swept Texas State to open their dual match seasons. Next up for both the men and the ladies, they're going to return home to host the ITA kickoff weekend at the Texas Tennis Center. The men will open up with Columbia. The ladies open up with Florida Atlantic. Staying at the top of the country, number one men swimming and diving tops TCU 189 to 100 on Friday in Austin. The team of Drew Kibler, Kobe Carroza, Luke Hobson, and Carson Foster together collectively set a new Texas Swimming Center pool record in the 800 free relay with a time of 7 minutes, 14 seconds, and I guess 37 portions of a second. Hundreds. Hundredths of a second? Yeah, hundredths. I've I've never been fast enough to need to measure something in hundredths (laughs) of a second, so this is unfamiliar to me. Keep it a country club. Number eight men's golf opens up their spring season at Pepperdine Southwestern Invitational, currently sitting fifth at one over after one round. Yeah, this is a really good field to start off, um, and and I'm going to talk about it a little bit in my bang the drum. Texas is not with their 100%. They have, I think, seven golfers even healthy right now to uh, participate. So it's it's impressive that they're as, as high as they are because this is a loaded field with number two, Arizona State, the host, Pepperdine, at number five, number 12, Wake Forest, number 16, Georgia, who's on fire. I think they're like nine under after the first round, number 20, Washington. Uh, but in this one, Texas was led by, uh, you know, a, a – Player who is in his final year and has had lots of hype, and what does he do in his uh, his opening round of his final spring? Uh, nothing but a, a hole in one. Uh, so he had uh, on the back nine. He started out, I believe, four over uh, through the first like nine, and then ended at four under because he had shot a thirty on the back nine, including a hole in one. Just uh, Cole Hammer was absolutely on fire. So he will be the kind of the captain and experienced leader of this team uh, until the cooties come back. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I do think this is a great performance, but do expect that Texas, even though they're number eight, will uh, will face some, some challenges during this whole tournament and in the probably next couple weeks till they're at full strength. That is C-O-O-D-I-E-S cooties, not C-O-O-T-I-E-S cooties for all of you wondering. Softball opens the season ranked number nine. Uh, Still picked third. The Big 12 has three of the top 10 teams in the country, which is absolutely stupid. Uh, Defending champion OU obviously sits atop. And then OSU, thanks to a transfer from Austin to Stillwater, um, sits at number three. The Big 12 in both baseball and softball, like you could just go ahead. Whoever wins the Big 12 is probably going to win the national championship. Like that's probably pretty safe to say. It, there's a very good chance, um, especially in, in the Big 12, because, you know, this Texas team with a lot of transfers could be bet, better than number nine. And the Oklahoma State team with, again, Miranda Elish, who, who wasn't even picked as a preseason, uh, one of the 12 members on the all Big 12 team, another of their pitchers was, in fact, uh, which is fair. She sat out. She, did, she didn't play last year, so they're maybe going off of that. Um, but it, it, they, this could be one, two, and three, one, two, and five. 
uh, one, three, and six. Uh, some combination of that. You could add all these up, and they may not reach. 10 total between them at the end of the year. It's very, very top-heavy. They're very, very good. Texas finished 12 last year, so to be pick number nine shows that people, the voters think they're going to be improved. Um, out of that 12-member preseason Big 12 team I mentioned, Janae Jefferson was one of two uh, unanimous selections joined by teammates Mary Iacopo and pitcher Shea O'Leary. So uh, big expectations, a lot of returning talent, and adding in some some big-name transfers. We'll see how it all comes together. But, man, it's going to be hard to beat OU. And, and, and again, it, there there is a world where there is an OU-Oklahoma State National Championship game. Um, they, they are both so stinking good this year. In Oklahoma City, that would be an insane, insane, insane matchup. Track and field open the initial rankings at number one on the men's side and number two on the ladies' side after winning six events at the Red Raider Invite. The men and the women, again, both absolutely ready to kind of storm the storm the field and take the take the country by storm. Hopefully, coming up with a national championship for their troubles. Yeah, they're they're, they're very good and they are primed for the indoor season. They they have started off with top 10 times all over uh on the men's side they have eight already uh of the eight marks that are in the top 10 in their respective event three of them in the 800 alone uh Creighton Carrozzo is number three Yusuf uh our boy uh Bizimana at number five and Cole Lindhorst at number seven so good at the distance um and then the they have the top ranked DMR which is the distance medley relay which if you're not familiar, you, each of the four legs runs basically more, right? You go from uh, 200 to 400 to 800 uh, to the 16. So you, each, each runner is running a little bit further, but uh, they have the top ranked time in that this year with the, those three that I mentioned, uh, Linhorst, Bismarck, Carroza, and then Willington Wright. Trip Papiri has the second longest throw in the country this year in shot put. He was named the Big 12 Track and Field Athlete of the Week for his recent efforts. And then the 4 by 4 relay of Jonathan Jones, Matt Norche, Willington Wright, and Brian Heron have the second fastest time in the NCAA. So just blazing all over, uh, especially in the kind of medium uh, distance runs, medium to, to short, long runs, if you will, the, the 400, 800 range. Um, and then, of course, in, in the throwers. And the women on their side have posted 12 top 10 ranks, one one off the uh, number one Arkansas. Uh, in the 400, again, alone, that's really a sweet spot for, for uh, Texas, the 400 to 800 distance. Um, they posted three of the top 10 times in the country just at this past uh, Red Raider invite with Kennedy Simon leading the NCAA with a 52-15, and then her teammates basically, you know, tenths of seconds uh, behind that. Uh, number five is uh, Rastadad at Tekele and Stacey and Williams at number six. Uh, and those three, again, plus Milan Young, also registered the third fastest four by four. And then Julian Alfred, who hasn't competed until this recent event, just opened up like she did last year, matching her program record time of 7.1 in the 60, which is the best time in the country. So a national champion waiting to happen there uh, for Julianne. And then again, in that 800 distance, Texas really good. Brooke Jaworski and Valerie Tobias, both in top five in the country. Um, we look good this year. We look good indoor. We look good outdoor. But I think indoor even better chance uh, with where Texas shines to uh, to take home one, if not two. Why not two national championships? I would love to see Texas sweep the track and field national championship, especially because those folks in College Station like to chirp a little bit about their track and field program. Let's just continue to dominate. But speaking of dominating people that like to chirp and can't shut up, Dex beat for Texas. They'll be back in action on Friday in Lubbock for the Texas Tech Open. 
All right, Gerald, let's take a look uh, at some burnt orange lenses. We're going to go football heavy here with uh, some, some ex-Longhorns. Uh, Longhorns, the big news, are guaranteed representation in a school record 17th consecutive Super Bowl due to the fact that they will have a representative on each of the AFC teams. Three out of the four teams left uh, will feature Longhorns, so there's a, there's a good shot that a Longhorn uh, is a champion this year. Uh, a couple Longhorns who won't be going on to the, the final four, if you will, the uh, the conference championship week. Uh, Dante Foreman had a great game with Henry coming back. He was a bit limited, had a 50-ish yard run, but had 66 yards on four carries. Wasn't enough for the Titans uh, with Jeff Swaim starting at tight end. Marcus Johnson's, of course, on the IR there. They fell in the last second field goal to the fighting Trey Hopkins. That's the Cincinnati Bengals. Guys with two really good Joes, of course, Burrow and Osai, uh, who himself is on the injured reserve. But uh, we have uh, Hopkins, who's starting at center there, so he will be moving on and in the AFC will meet Alex Okafor in the Chiefs and that's right that's how I say that Alex Okafor in the Chiefs no one else uh, beat the Buffalo Bills in one of the best football games you know I've ever seen uh, and mainly because the Bills had no Longhorns on the roster and that was clearly their their undoing in, in the end and I'm going to talk more about this in my bang the drum but there's a direct correlation with Big 12 style football and going to the Super Bowl this year. And so I'm just saying, like, the more Texas Longhorns and Big 12 players you could have in general, probably better off for you. Another Big 12 uh, stalwart making his way on a different team who he got traded to and has been uh, having, a, having a good impact. Charles Amenahu in the 49ers won thanks to special teams, uh, and you could say science, against uh, the, uh, the frozen tundra uh, protectors. Aaron Rodgers couldn't get it done in the playoffs at home. Uh, maybe he doesn't like the cold. Maybe he's going somewhere else. But uh, that was a, a Longhorn on Longhorn battle with uh, DB coach Jerry Gray from uh, Green Bay falling to, uh, of course, the uh, you know head coach Shanahan is a Texan. But also, Mr. Hightower is the special teams coordinator for the 49ers who basically won on special teams with blocked kicks and punts all over the place and a last-second field goal is a Longhorn. So uh, pretty much a Longhorn uh, one for the 49ers there, and they will take on the Rams, who, again, foolishly are the only team without a Longhorn uh, of these final four remaining. And then in the the soon-to-be former or NFL Longhorns, senior kicker slash punter Cameron Dicker will go forego his additional year of eligibility and enter the NFL draft. He finished his career with the Longhorns with 386 points, the most ever, by a kicker third most amongst any position uh, in school history. He's the career leader and Field goals made with 60, tied for most attempts, 79. Second all-time in extra points and extra points attempted. Fourth in career field goal accuracy. He'll end with just about 76%, but he made 12 of his uh, he made all 12 of his final dozen field goals, basically. So his fourth longest streak in school history will stop there and won't get to extend uh, into the the next season where he could have, you know, could have just made all of them, make 20 in a season, see what happens. I mean, when Texas offered a scholarship to a kicker and took a spot in this class that was already going to be very full to a kicker, it felt like the writing was kind of on the wall a little bit. But um, there are options there, and, and Cameron Dicker has been great for Texas. You know, there have been complaints about consistency or whatever, but but his, him stepping in, um, and especially in the punting unit where Texas needed some some help and some consistency, that actually turned out to I think be his best, like of the of the place kicking and the and the. Um, 
field goals and of the punting. The punting actually turned out to be the best um, the best option for him. I mean, he was averaging 47 a punt, basically. Like, again, flipped the field a couple of times, especially in that OU and, and OSU games. Like, he might end up being an NFL punter when it's all said and done. Yeah, owns the fifth and sixth longest punts in school history. His is like you said, forty-seven yards, the third best uh, average. When you think about Texas being punter, you uh, and Mike Dixon having played here, that's really, really, really good. Uh, he was the the Big Twelve first team punter this year and was a Ray guy semifinalist. Uh, you know, to go with a couple All Big Twelve second teams as a kicker. So it'll be curious where he goes. It's just Gerald. Really, we know it's our guy Isaac Pearson. Time. It's time for him to shine and keep the Aussie punting pipeline going. But Gerald, are you? You have to pick sides. This is this is known, just like we do with our quarterbacks, and then slander the other one. Are you ready for the Stone Age, or are you ready uh, to be Burton Auburn while we go to the SEC? It's hard for me to bet against the guy that Jeff Banks just offered a scholarship to. I'm just gonna say that. Like that's if I'm if I'm thinking like like a better, then you gotta go with the, the data that's on the table. And well, Jeff Banks, special teams coach, offered a scholarship to Will Stone. So maybe he's a guy. Also, Isaac Pearson's on scholarship. So I'm I would love to see like a like again, maybe all three of them where Stone is doing field goals and Auburn's doing kickoffs and Pearson's doing punts, but I mean I, I trust Jeff Banks. Let's just put it like that. Fair enough. I don't know that you can root against Bert Auburn's hair, though. I mean, it's just, it's majestic. All right, Gerald. Uh, Sideshow Bob is who he resembles, but there's uh, there's other TV shows that you and I have been watching. What have you been watching on your giant screen as we move to Godzillatron? So I've been like working on random stuff. We're, we're reconfiguring our house to um, get the baby his own room because our, we didn't expect to have three kids in this small house, but it is what it is. Um, and so I'm working on some stuff in the back and I need something that I can like have on in the background and kind of closely pay attention to, but not super watch close. And so I've been doing an MCU rewatch doing, I've never done it in chronological order. So oldest story setting to newest. And so it's been an interesting uh, different view on what it is in uh, that. That's been enjoyable for me. I'm also uh, keeping up with Book of Boba Fett. There's a lot of people that don't like the show. I'm fine with it. I think um, there's a long conversation to be had about the expectations of adults who first saw a movie as a child and like expecting to be childlike blown away every time by it. Like there are legitimate criticisms of the show, but also like I saw star Wars for the first time when I was like 10. And so like my expectations for star Wars have been high, but, and, or different. I'm enjoying it. I think they're setting up for like a Godfather ending at the end of it. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that, uh, that stays, but that's been really what I've been living. Uh, and then Kyle, you and I are kind of, kind of going to joint yours, uh, for this next one. That's right. I, I have finished. I think I'm uh, about six episodes ahead of you. I finished the first season, uh, of righteous gemstones this week. And, there are some laughs. It is <laughs> could see it not being for everyone. It is not a perfect, you know, show, but it is great. Uh, I had some belly laughs it, again, as Gerald will often preface, not one for the kids, uh, in, in the room. Um, very adult humor. Um, it, it tells the story of, uh, basically the, the familial, uh, generational in this in this mega church right you have multiple generations of family story of the gemstone family who are uh, a southern kind of mega church pastoring uh family that you know might be a send up of some of the bigger you know Joel Osteen and and any churches that might be in highlands or uh or or otherwise around the the south um but it's um and and it's as as someone who grew up in in churches and and later in in 
big kind of megachurch style as a teen. There, there's there's some parody that that is spot on. Um, there's some interesting. It, it isn't it doesn't skewer too hard, but it does skewer. Uh, so you know, again, think of that before you watch it. But it is it is biting satire, but it's also just funny. It's a Danny McBride show. You know, he didn't necessarily satire minor league baseball when he made uh, a, a hilarious show about that. He just give him a topic where you can go in and go a little outlandish, and he you know dives in, and it's just a great cast, and it's very funny. Um, again, it, it's it's not. PG or PG 13. It is, it is, it is adult humor. Uh, but it cracks me up. There was just multiple, multiple moments in this that I was like, Ooh, this might be the funniest comedy, pure comedy show that I've watched in a couple years. I'm not one that's afraid to laugh at myself. And so I think that's, uh, if, if that's not you, this is definitely not something, uh, for you. And that's okay. Like not everything is for everybody and that's completely okay. Yeah, Gerald, and, and something, just to keep on that note, something that isn't necessarily for everyone, uh, during early stage of pandemic, I think they released the first season of Cheer, and that's when it was just like, give me anything that is on streaming, I'm going to consume it, and it was a documentary about Navarro College in East Texas, which is like the, the, the junior college powerhouse with this coach who is uh, the Nick Saban of the cheerleading world, in a lot of ways, she actually kind of sounds like him, um, but she's like a 14-time national champion, uh, and her this so the first season was, was pretty good, it, it went viral, had some breakout stars, you know, sure. Uh, I, I enjoyed it enough. And the trailer came out for the second one. And my wife was like, why did I get emotional about a show and people that I don't really care about? It's just really well done. And, and, and it was played on the heartstrings. Like, I will watch this uh, again as a, as a filler show. Basically, neither of us were especially invested in it. But the second season is interesting because they bring up the rivalry with Trinity Valley Community College, which if you remember, uh, Reggie Hemphill Maps went there. It's when I first heard of it uh, after he left Texas. But apparently they are known as being also a cheerleading powerhouse, winning multiple national champions that recently haven't had as much success. But there's some interesting characters. There's a person who they call the Simone Biles of cheerleading, and she does like things with her body, like flipping uh, both her and her brother is a, is a cheerleader on there as well, and the two of them uh, do stuff that I didn't know was humanly possible, and I find it fascinating. And it's just like, again, like I marvel at Simone Biles, who's one of the greatest athletes to ever live, and I don't think gets enough credit for that fact. Um, like just point blank, point blank period, not Olympic, not female, not whatever, just simply one of the greatest athletes to ever have lived. Um, and so the, this this cheerleader is, is described as that and holds like Guinness records for most flips and watching her just do these crazy uh, things with her body. I, you know, I marvel at that at pure sport. Again, we cover all sports on this show. Obviously we focus heavily on football and uh, baseball, basketball, the big kind of revenue sports, but we try to shine the light intentionally on uh, women's sports, on sports that just don't get as much airtime, prime time. Uh, and, and I don't know that we've ever significantly talked about cheering. I don't know how the UT cheer team even really stacks up in competitive cheering. I know they look amazing there on the sidelines and keep the energy going, but um, you, you know, cheerleading is not a sport that I had, since high school, you know, really thought about. Uh, and so it's an interesting documentary and you should check it out if that to you is, you know, you like an interesting storyline, a little little drama or uh, or some, you know, some some actually like pretty crazy feats of athleticism. All those things, if you're looking for it, uh, you know, it's 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 a solid time filler. I mean, I've heard good things. I've heard, I've heard really like people I trust and value talk about how they're enjoying it. So it's something that I might have to check out. But now it brings us to the part of the show where we honor one of the best traditions in all of college athletics, Big Bertha, and we bang the drum, brought to you by Joe Ruiz. So Kyle, 
What are you banging the drum on this week? So I was over the holidays. I, I had seen it and it kind of slipped my mind that, that, and I referenced it earlier that both of the twin cootie brothers were, um, going through an injury uh, issue and, and it was after Christmas before New Year's. Um, so in the kind of those, the, the dead days when you don't really check a lot of news. And so I didn't, didn't really keep up with what it was. And I've seen a couple of news stories as the season kicked off and, and dug into it a bit. And every story is just referred to it as a freak accident. Um, they're, they're expected to miss, you know, this tournament, obviously that's happening, probably the next one. And we'll see, I think they're just starting to be able to like swing a club right now. But they are twins in a weird way that both uh, seniors Pearson and Parker Cootie uh, are, are, you know, broke a bone in their right arm at the same time and are both in slings. Uh, they're, you know, good spirit about it, how they're twins and they can't do anything not together. But uh, basically they had a relay, uh, like a team building relay that they each were the final leg and were neck and neck and were trying to beat each other and extended out and ended up going into a, a wall a la Oklahoma State football and how they try to do uh, running backs who come into their stadium but went into a brick wall and both fractured a bone in their right arm. Um, so I would say that classifies as freak accident and it's it's unfortunate. But then I was thinking about UT's recent history and I, of course, thought about uh, a certain elite shortstop who, who you know, was in a, a bird or lime. I'm not going to besmirch a certain brand, but a, a uh, scooter about campus incident where missed the whole season uh, and, and basically the last year of his career at Texas. Um, we have had, you know, just some, a litany of, of weird ones. Obviously, you, you it's, it's different because it was career ending and I, you know, these are kind of comical ish, but you know, you think about Darian Brown, the, the running back who came and had just kind of the freak injury. And at the same time, you had a linebacker from California to Gabriel Floyd, who we thought, um, you know, was going to solve a lot of problems and, and, and was never able to play with a, a kind of rare spinal injury. So some of these, these weird kind of crazy once in a, you know, program type of injuries. It feels like Texas has been racking them up across various sports lately. So I'll say I hope the Cootie Twins doing it two at once uh, kind of hold us over for a while. They hope they get back healthy. Hope they you know con- contribute to a national championship for the golf team. And this is an interesting anecdote on the uh, the Longhorn Network uh, season in review uh, video when they get to it. But I hope this this is also breaks the streak for a little while no more weird injuries uh do we have too many crazy athletes across too many sports who we want to watch compete no more no more weird stuff taking them off the pitch court field outside of the playing surface now uh so i'm banging the drum this week on um what's happening in the nfl i'm not a huge nfl fan it's not uh my preference the the dolphins have beaten most of the nfl fandom out of me in the three and a half decades I've been alive, but um, the NFL has started to be way more fun than it has been in years, and coincidentally, it's coincided with a bit of an offensive revolution at the NFL level, and so um, editor-in-chief of The Athletic, Stuart Mandel, a guy who I don't necessarily um, dislike, but you know, he's, he's, he's I'm not following him. It just comes across my feed when I see it. But he said something last night um, that frustrated the ever-living fire enemy. He said, my goodness, NFL football got way more exciting when it went full Big 12. And he meant that as a disparaging remark. At least it came across that way. Maybe I'm just being overly sensitive because this topic absolutely frustrates me. So there was a long time where the Big 12 got the moniker of the league with no defense. Nobody, and, and it still like hangs around, even though like Baylor and Oklahoma State won, like both were 
teams that were led by their defense, right? This year, people even still say that stuff. This year, somebody said, oh, he's a defensive player, so he's from the Big 12, we can't draft him, right? I heard, literally heard that on ESPN. But um, And at the same time, people were hyping up the defenses in the SEC. But then every time a Big 12 team played an SEC team, the offense absolutely blew them out of the water. And I've been banging this drum for, I don't know, 10 years now that it wasn't that the defenses in the Big 12 were bad. It was that the offenses were so ahead of what defenses were able to do schematically and from a player and personnel standpoint that they were setting the bar way higher than anybody could possibly imagine or meet up to. Case in point and proof source, Nick Saban said, and I quote, is this really what we want football to be? And then realized he was going to have to be that to win and set back-to-back offensive efficiency records and won national championships doing so. And so let's stop this myth that like the Big 12 isn't an offensive or isn't a defensive league. The Big 12 is actually, and this is where, this is where I'm really banging the drum. The Big 12 is the league that innovates. They innovated offense, which forced them to then innovate defense, which is where we are now, which again, in a couple of years when Texas and OU may not be in the Big 12 anymore, but there's going to be now probably and likely offensive innovation in the Big 12 because the defenses are now getting to be so good. And so I'm banging the drum on let's cut the storylines and just actually watch and talk about football as it's happening, because the Big 12, and really it trickles down, I think the Big 12 does it because Texas high school football has been innovating for a very, very mm. long time, and it's trickling upward. And so it goes from Texas high school football to the Big 12, from the Big 12 to the biggest stage. And so that is the mindset we need to have moving forward, and not this reductive Big 12, SEC, they're polar opposites and one better than the other conversation. Well, Gerald, clearly for the next one to two years, the Big 12 is better than everybody. But then in two years when we go to the SEC, it'll be the SEC is better and the Big 12 ain't no good. So I'm just happy wherever Texas is, is the best. No, I kid, but you're right. Uh, it, it is a bit, for for a guy like Mandel, you expect better from it is a bit of a reductive take. Um, but I, I, his point taken is basically using shorthand for innovation of offense that the big 12 did a couple years ago. Now that the NFL is doing it, it's actually fun to watch. That was the best weekend of football that we've watched at the NFL level in my lifetime. Like just four elite games that were all close. Um, Not all of them were huge offensive showdowns, but uh, you know, many of them had great offense featured, especially the last day. Uh, And so, you know, I, I think the shorthand made it reductive, but the point stands clear play fun football, innovate, do cool things, take chances in the way that many teams in the Big 12, many teams, you know, that we've played against or or, uh, in some way, hopefully Texas is a part of that, have done, uh, lead to that in the next level. And if you just say that, then yeah, that is fun. And I hope that's the way football goes. And I hope, you know, Steve Sarkeesian is continuing to innovate while at the University of Texas. And we're a part of that. And that's all we've got for you this week. Kyle, where can the good folks find you on the internet? You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Carbon. You can follow the Texas Pregamer at Texas Pregamer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at GH Goodridge. Follow the show on Twitter at Longhorn Pod. Facebook and Instagram, the Longhorn Republic. Or shoot us an email, LonghornRepublicPod at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with not one, but two shows. One, our normal Tuesday show, and then we'll drop a Thursday show, giving you a little bit of a baseball and softball preview as those teams are set to kick off in the next month. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. And until next time, hook them. Hook them. Keith from Righteous Gemstones is Quinn Ewers' doppelganger.